So a little housekeeping to get out of the way. Um, I have not been feeling very good these last couple days, which is why this is episode is coming out late. I do apologize. Um, so please just bear with me. I'm still not feeling great, but I wanted to make sure that this episode came out um, close to the time I would normally put it out. So if I don't sound great, um, <laughs> know that that's the reason why. And if it doesn't sound up to standards, know that this will be re-recorded at a later time. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Just an Avocado White Woman. Today, we're going to be speaking about the bottled water industry, plastics, and climate change, but only as it pertains to plastics. This is a continuation or a side topic of what we were talking about last week, which was poverty and water. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest you go back and listen to that one to understand how we got here. Just a little heads up that this is going to be a lengthy episode. My notes alone stretch to 12 pages, and the length and the fact that I got sick around the time I normally record is why this is coming to you a a bit late. I've been juggling to keep everything in order, and it was quite the task. So I hope you'll forgive me if it doesn't seem as organized as you'd normally expect, but enjoy. Plastics, industrialized in the early 1900s, are now used at an alarming rate with a million bottles per minute and 500 billion bags per year. Since 1950, the world has created 6.3 trillion kilograms of plastic waste, of which 91% has never been recycled. Currently, 40% of produced plastics are used for packaging. Just think of all of those things you see in packaging that are completely unnecessary. You go to the store and you see potatoes in a set of four packaged in styrofoam and plastic. It's unnecessary. Why not just have potatoes loose on the table to buy by the pound? You know, (laughs) stuff like that is, is really a ploy because they either sell them as a big, huge five pound bag, or they sell them as this little bitty set of four. There's really no in between. Plastics which were initially a waste product of oil, were repurposed. Oil is refined and distributed to consumers, who briefly benefit from its use in combustion engines before it leaves behind long-lasting atmospheric pollution. This same pattern is repeated with another byproduct of the oil and gas industry, the petroleum precursors for plastics. 
These are refined in industrial complexes and transformed into products such as bottles, bags, containers, textiles, and toys. While consumers enjoy their temporary use, these items are quickly discarded, adding to the waste problem. The life cycle of plastic involves seven stages, extraction, transport, refining, production, distribution, consumption, and disposal or pollution. The waste issue cannot be solved by treating it as a waste issue alone, according to Center for International Environmental Law, or CIEL, but rather it needs to be addressed at the distribution level. The responsibility of solving the problem lies not with the consumer, but with the producers, the oil and gas companies. Thrifting was popular before World War II, but the introduction of plastic post-war led to an increase in consumerism, fostering a throwaway mindset. In 1971, the nonprofit organization Keep America Beautiful, funded by the oil industry, launched a campaign featuring an emotional image of a, quote, Native American amid a polluted environment. The accompanying message was, quote, people start pollution, people can stop it, unquote. This campaign was later revealed to be a strategic maneuver to prevent states from implementing bans on single-use plastic. The campaign effectively shifted the blame for environmental pollution from corporations to individuals, subtly suggesting that it was the public's responsibility to clean up the mess rather than addressing the root cause of the problem, the production of single-use plastic by large industries. It is a classic example of how powerful corporations manipulate public opinion to protect their interests, often at the expense of the environment. Single-use plastics, such as bags and straws, are non-essential items that persist in the environment indefinitely. Companies often shift the blame for oceanic plastic waste to poor management or infrastructure in smaller countries, despite the fact that waste is frequently exported from larger to smaller nations, or from, quote, first world countries to third world countries. The public is often misled to believe they are responsible for this issue while also being encouraged to consume more plastic goods and fund cleanup efforts through taxes. The term carbon footprint was popularized by fossil fuel companies to shift blame for the climate crisis onto the general public despite these companies having the most significant impact. The reality about plastic is that it is mostly non-recyclable. A considerable amount, about 32% of plastic, is littered in the environment, often ending up in our oceans or cluttering our landscapes. In a very small amount of cases, such plastic waste is repurposed into building materials in poor communities. An example of this can be seen in Kenya, where in a zombie Matti started a project in 2020 that uses plastic waste and sand to create bricks. These bricks are not only stronger than concrete by twice the strength, but they're also 30% cheaper. This project has created jobs for locals, removed 20 tons of waste from the system in its first year, and helped build homes for community. 
But unless this is more widely adopted and popularized across the globe, it's not going to make a huge impact on the waste and pollution on the planet. Overall, approximately 40% of all plastic ends up in landfills, contributing to land pollution. Another 14% is incinerated, releasing harmful toxins into the air and contributing to air pollution. Of the 14% left that is recycled, only 2% is effectively recycled. The rest, about 12%, is downcycled, which means that they degrade when recycled and can only be recycled once, unlike other materials like glass and metal. Downcycling plastic often results in the creation of something worse, such as one-time-use plastic, or it gets turned into clothes. The latter poses several problems. For one, once plastic is turned into clothing, it can't be recycled further and is destined for the landfill, incineration, or dumping into nature. This process removes plastic bottles from the circular recycling loops where they can be made into new bottles again. Even companies aiming to go green by using plastic bottles to produce clothes have found the process too costly and labor intensive and often resort to manufacturing new plastic bottles for their fabric, creating an even bigger issue. Moreover, using recycled plastic in synthetic clothes doesn't help address the wider problem of microplastics. Billions of tiny plastic particles shed from clothing during manufacturing, wearing, and washing still end up polluting the ocean and our bodies. In addition, the use of recycled synthetics by brands is just a drop in the ocean compared to the industry's reliance on virgin plastics. The plastic industry often frames plastic as a valuable resource, highlighting its use in life-saving medical inventions. While these are indeed valuable, the majority of plastic items made are single-use plastics, such as the plastic used to wrap up fashion items by fast fashion companies or plastic grocery bags. A case in point is sachets, single-use packets of items like fabric detergent or coffee mix. Companies like Nestle, Procter & Gamble, and Unilever have moved into communities like India that would previously bring glass or reusable bags to their markets to collect the goods they wanted. Sachets are marketed mostly in poor countries, so these companies can make more money. These countries, however, have no way of dealing with the waste, and they sometimes have to deal with the waste of other countries on top of their own due to bans in places like China. The environmental and health impacts of plastic production are extensive and alarming. The epicenters of the plastic booms stretch along the Gulf Coast from Texas to Louisiana and through the upper Ohio River Valley. These areas are often home to small, economically disadvantaged communities that have little say in the industry developments occurring in their backyards. These communities have been faced with the construction of massive oil and gas facilities, resulting in a litany of health issues. Gas companies lie on their propaganda for these pipelines, claiming it's for heating of U.S. homes when it's really for shipping oil and gas across the ocean to create plastics. 
And if homeowners try to fight back against this, they're hit with a public domain threat, much like they do with land they've taken from the Native Americans. The passage of the U.S. Energy Policy Act in 2005 marked a significant turning point in the story of plastic. The act, which granted oil and gas companies exemptions from health and environmental regulations, triggered a boom in shale gas extraction, also known as fracking. This development has made production of plastic significantly cheaper in the United States, leading to an oversupply of raw materials for plastic creation and subsequently accelerating the proliferation of plastic products. For homes that are around these fracking sites, which are often families in poverty as well, that are already experiencing water shortages, they have experienced chronic respiratory problems, headaches, and increased risks of leukemia, particularly in children. This also leads to a need for more medical equipment and bottled water, which is made out of and comes in what? Plastic. In the United States, plastics production has surged by 400 million metric tons since the 1950s. This surge was propelled by a well-intentioned but ultimately misguided recycling initiative that sought to recycle all plastics, including those that are not recyclable. This led to facilities being burdened with vast amounts of plastic waste, much of which was exported to China until 2018. Before the ban on plastic waste in China, Chinese recyclers used to dump collected waste into rivers to separate valuable material and let the remaining waste float downstream. However, with the implementation of the ban, businesses that operated warehouses for storing plastic waste had to move to other countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. The shift led to a new set of problems. These countries did not have the same type of infrastructure as China to deal with the large amounts of plastic being shipped. So instead of ending up in warehouses, the plastic waste started accumulating in fields and backyards. Many of these plastics were not recyclable at the end stages, either because they had been printed on or because they were different types of clear plastic, making it difficult to determine what type of plastic they were without incinerating them. This practice was not only harmful to health, but also led to the release of toxic chemicals into the environment. Local residents began suffering from health issues such as respiratory distress, severe dermatitis, and fertility problems. And children stopped playing outside due to the hazardous conditions. The sorting process of plastic involves chipping it into quarter-sized flakes and washing it. This wash water, often filled with microplastics and other pollutants, was then discarded into the local rivers and estuaries without going through effluent treatment plants, which as I noted in the fast fashion episode, are absolutely necessary for removing pollution and reducing water waste. Once washed, the plastic is melted and extruded into long spaghetti chains and then chopped into pellets or nurdles. This melted plastic releases toxic volatile organic compounds or VOCs, 
which are known to cause headaches, dizziness, memory loss, visual impairment, emphysema, bronchitis, and other acute respiratory diseases. Furthermore, the environment also suffered due to the release of methane, a potent greenhouse gas that contributes to global warming, and the formation of acid rain due to an increased presence of acidic compounds in the atmosphere. The recycling industry in these countries is primarily driven by poverty, a factor that allows the fashion industry to profit from waste as well. Most of the waste pickers are men, which is opposite of what we saw in the fashion industry where the main workers are women. And these men have to sort through 83 different kinds of plastic. The environmental impact of plastic waste is acutely visible in our oceans, where billions of kilograms of plastic enter each year. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, the largest of the five gyres that's formed, spans an area twice the size of Texas between Hawaii and California. It contains a dizzying array of plastic waste from small plastic shards to large objects like fishing nets and consumer goods, all swirling in a smog of microplastics. This massive garbage patch is not only a stark visual symbol of the plastics crisis, but also a serious threat to marine life. Marine creatures often ingest small plastic particles, confusing them for food. This plastic ingestion not only harms the marine life, but also poses a risk to humans who consume seafood. The toxins from plastics can accumulate in the tissues of fish and shellfish, potentially transferring to humans upon consumption. The health implications of plastic waste extend far beyond the communities directly involved in plastic production. Recent studies have found that plastic particles are in 83% of tap water globally and 93% of bottled water. More alarmingly, a 2022 study discovered traces of plastics in human blood with almost 80% of those tested having at least one type of plastic in their blood. These findings suggest that plastic pollution has infiltrated our bodies, potentially contributing to chronic illnesses like diabetes and cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. Despite the growing public knowledge and concern about plastic waste in the ocean, efforts to combat this problem have been grossly inadequate. The Alliance to End Plastic Waste, an initiative run by major oil companies like Dow, ExxonMobil, Chevron Phillips, and Formosa Plastic Corporations, has committed a mere $1.2 billion to clean up efforts. And while that may seem like a lot, this amount is woefully insufficient when compared to the $204 billion these companies are funneling into over 344 new petrochemical facilities. In India, the Gazapar dairy farm stands next to a landfill that receives waste from half a Delhi. The proximity to this landfill has serious health implications, 
with doctors predicting that life expectancy is 15 to 20 years lower due to the exposure to waste and pollution. In the Philippines, Manila Bay is being choked by waste, much of it plastic. Once waste enters the bay, it doesn't leave, and whatever comes in from the rivers also stays. Despite daily cleanups, the waste never goes away, mainly because what washes up is unrecyclable, such as multi-layer packaging. One common type of waste is sachets, which I mentioned earlier. These are particularly problematic because they introduce a significant amount of plastic into the environment, which is not biodegradable. The pollution in Manila Bay also has a severe impact on the local economy, which depends heavily on fishing. Alarmingly, 40% of what the locals catch is plastic, highlighting the severe level of pollution in the bay. Recently, I was scrolling Instagram and I came across an article where they found that Hurricane Larry that hit in 2021 in America dropped over 100,000 microplastics per square meter of land per day. How scary is that? We also need to shift public perception. It is critical to understand that the blame for the plastic crisis should not be on the general public. As mentioned earlier, the term carbon footprint was popularized by fossil fuel companies to shift the blame from them to the general public. Therefore, it is essential to hold these corporations accountable for their role in perpetuating the plastic pollution crisis. Countries like India have conducted audits on waste and called for what they term an extended producer responsibility or EPR, which transfers the responsibility of discarding branded products back to the manufacturer, such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, PepsiCo, Nestle, and others. Sometimes the contributors of plastic pollution have tried to reframe the pollution back into energy recovery through burning waste for energy. However, this approach, as exemplified by the top company Covanta in Salem, Oregon, has showed that it can release toxins into the air. The production and incineration of global plastics currently creates the CO2 pollution equivalent to 189 coal plants. In 2016, a significant global initiative known as Break Free from Plastic, was launched to combat the ever-growing problem of plastic pollution. This movement aimed to address the escalating environmental crisis caused by the widespread use and improper disposal of plastic. It focused primarily on reducing plastic waste and mitigating its detri detrimental impacts on our environment, both terrestrial and marine. This initiative brought together a remarkable number of organizations, approximately 1,500 in total, from all corners of the globe. These organizations, diverse in their size and scope, were united in their commitment to reduce plastic waste and its harmful effects on our, on our planet. They worked together, sharing resources and knowledge to formulate and implement strategies aimed at curbing plastic pollution. Among these organizations was Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, or Gaia. 
a significant international alliance that works towards the creation of a just, toxic-free world without incineration. Gaia's involvement in the Break Free from Plastic initiative not only highlights their commitment to environmental conservation, but also underscores the importance of collective global effort in tackling the pressing issue of plastic pollution. Gaia, along with other organizations involved, work tirelessly to raise awareness and promote sustainable alternatives to plastic. They strive to influence policy changes at various levels, advocated for corporate responsibility, and encourage individuals to reduce their plastic consumption. The Break Free from Plastic initiative is a major step in the fight against plastic pollution, emphasizing the need for collective action and global cooperation to tackle this pervasive and environmental issue. Last time we talked about poverty and water, I mentioned the article that exposed companies that paid over 100 million to avoid accountability for their contamination of drinking water, including all major oil companies, due to their release of PFA contaminants. These companies are the first in the line, but they then pass it on to the next contributors to climate change, companies like Nestle, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, and Unilever. With the bottled water, soda, iced tea, and various other bottled beverages that we drink that come in plastic bottles, these companies consume a lot of plastic. But I want to talk about their contribution as it connects to poverty and water. Nestle, a multinational food and beverage corporation, has been involved in multiple controversies related to water extraction. One such controversy was in California's Strawberry Creek. In 2018, it was reported that the company had extracted 45 million gallons of water from the creek, leading to severe depletion of the once gushing springs. The state authorities have been investigating whether Nestle's extraction activities from the creek were illegal. In 2017, they advised the company to immediately halt any unauthorized water diversions. However, the following year, the Forest Service approved a new five-year permit that allowed Nestle to continue using federal land for water extraction. The company's actions have drawn sharp criticism over the years, particularly from environmentalists and local communities. It's argued that the over-extraction of water by companies like Nestle is leading to severe depletion of water resources. Former Nestle executive Barbrick has even suggested that the world will run out of fresh water before oil, emphasizing the need for privatization, which in my mind makes no sense at all. Water is a basic human right, so you're going to take it all and privatize it to sell it for profit. Huh? Apart from water extraction, Nestle also invests heavily in lobbying, similar to oil companies. The company donates significant amount to lobbyists to influence policies in its favor. Nestle often courts communities to get them to agree to its water drilling, though it isn't straightforward in what it wants to do. For example, in 2001, when a factory located in Stanwood, Michigan, was contested by local counties, Nestle engaged in the community efforts to build local goodwill. The company received a 9.5 
million tax break and undertook several initiatives such as purchasing emergency first responder vehicles, installing new township wells, and making bottled water donations to schools. Later, in 2003, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality Water Division granted a permit to Nestle Waters North America's Inc. plant in McCosick Township, allowing it to withdraw up to 400 gallons per minute. This is equivalent to 576,000 gallons per day. In 2009, an agreement was put into place that imposed restrictions on spring and summer withdrawals, allowing the plant to pump an average of 218 gallons per minute, or approximately 313,000 gallons per day. For this one-time $5,000 application fee to begin operation and an annual $200 permit fee for the groundwater well it operates in Michigan, it creates a gross annual sales of $104 billion. They're both stealing a natural resource and profiting off of people's poverty and necessity of water knowing that there's nothing special about what they're providing, but making claims about how they're using recycled materials when in fact they're contributing to the problem more and more. Underprivileged communities around the world often suffer from consistent disruptions to their water supply. This can be due to various factors such as infrastructure issues, or environmental contamination, such as Flint, Michigan. As a result, they have no choice but to rely heavily on bottled water to meet their basic needs. While this dependency on bottled water is a necessary survival strategy, it inadvertently contributes to the escalating problem of plastic waste. As a result, these communities are caught in a complex web of socioeconomic and environmental issues. Powerful entities such as oil companies and governments end up profiting from their predicaments. These oil companies not only play a crucial role in plastic bottle production, but also provide substantial funding to governments. The government's apparent apathy, coupled with the fact that these impoverished communities are often left to deal with the environmental and health consequences of industries such as fracking or plastic production, further exasperates their reliance on bottled water. This cyclical issue significantly tr contributes to the plastic waste crisis. Addressing this plastic waste crisis requires a multifaceted approach. The rising sea levels pose a significant threat to the United States, especially the coastal regions. In the next 30 years, it is predicted that the U.S. coastlines will experience an average of one foot of sea level rise. This is the significant increase that could lead to devastating consequences. More than 65 million people, which comprise roughly 20% of the U.S. population, reside in coastal cities. These areas harbor a diverse demographic, with nearly 60% identifying as Black, Indigenous, and people of color. However, our current state of preparedness for the rising seas and storms is highly inadequate. Historically, disadvantaged communities, which often have a high concentration of BIPOC individuals, bear the brunt of these environmental disasters. They are often hit first and worst, 
owing to factors like insufficient infrastructure, lack of resources, and socioeconomic disparities. The implications of this looming environmental crisis extend beyond just safety concerns. Economies heavily reliant on coastal industries like fishing and tourism stand to suffer significant losses. Cultural heritage sites located along coastlines are at risk of being lost to the rising seas. Communities face the prospect of displacement, leading to socio-cultural disruptions. There is an urgent need for a move towards zero waste and the implementation of measures that ensure product recyclability or compostability. By going zero waste, this also means that less public money has to go into maintaining landfills. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Just an Avocado White Woman. Hopefully this gives you a better understanding of the intersectionality of big oil, plastic waste, poverty, and climate change. Join me next time where we'll talk about poverty and food.